It's very interesting to me that we're not trained on power and power dynamics. We spend a lot of time talking about power and power dynamics. We certainly experience the effects of power and the consequences of power when not held well. We're not taught the subtleties of power in our own bodies or how to wield it, how to utilize it toward creative ends and co-create in power so that we can have power with as opposed to just power over which is the dominant paradigm. As a woman growing up in a religious paradigm, I can attest to the fact that I, at least in my experience, was trained how to submit to power, <laughs> how to defer, deflect, be nice, be good, be sweet, be kind, but definitely don't stand in your own power. Don't shake things up. Don't ask questions. Don't live the questions. And certainly don't get curious about what works, what doesn't, and to follow that inner curiosity and instinct and intuition into a more wild and expansive life force affirming reality. Now, most of us women who broke out of those containers had to do it the hard way and the old way. But there is somebody out there who is actively training women on how to break free and become unbound, how to unknow all the very, very unhelpful training that many of us as women received. Her name is Kasha Urbanayak. She's the founder and CEO of The Academy. It's a school that teaches women the foundations of power and influence. I met Kasha through a mutual friend who basically, well within a month of meeting me, said, oh my God, you remind me so much of my friend Kasha. You have to meet each other. It's just weird. After meeting each other on Zoom and having a couple of conversations, Kasha generously invited me to sit in on a couple of her classes at The Academy, and I was blown away. Kasha is an incredibly unique and masterful teacher. You see, over the course of nearly 20 years, she worked as a professional dominatrix, practiced Taoist alchemy in one of the oldest female-led monasteries in China, and obtained dozens of certifications in different disciplines, which include medical qigong and systemic constellations. And since founding the academy in 2013, Kasha has taught over 4,000 women the tools the practical step, the embodied knowledge on how to break free from the stories, the lies, the narratives, the small, tiny containers and boxes that most of us were trained to be sweetly in. Kasha has also written a book called Unbound, A Woman's Guide to Power. We will be discussing some of the topics in her book in this conversation. So just like I normally say something when I'm interviewing an artist and I'm reminding all of you that just because you don't consider yourself an artist doesn't mean you don't have a lot to learn about the path of creative possibility from listening to a particular artist. I'm going to say the same thing now about Kasha. If you don't identify as a woman, this is not a podcast episode just for women. There is a lot for us to learn on the path of creative possibility about unknowing, about power, about the unhelpful categories that many of us were trained in to label things as good and bad and then miss out on the opportunity to alchemize that energy toward creative ends. So grab your notebook. You're going to want to write down some things because there's a lot of embodied wisdom coming your way. So with that, let's dive right into episode 12 with Kasha Urbanayak. So Kasha, thank you so much for being on Unknowing today. I usually like to begin by asking my guests about the map, the first map that you were given 
growing up to make sense of your reality. This has a way of setting us off in a particular direction and course. And so to begin, would you share what map you were given? What lens were you handed to interpret your world? Um, Well, two things come to mind, but can you tell me a little bit more about what kind of map you're looking for? Like what you mean by map? I kind of like to leave it open. For some people, it'll be like, well, this was my spiritual upbringing. For some people, it's like, well, I had a scientist for a dad and a teacher for a mom, and that impacted me in this way. So whatever kind of first popped into your mind. What comes up for me is a radical violation of a map I had that I didn't know I had. So when I, when I was born, my parents, who are musicians, were touring quite heavily. So even though I was born in New York... We very quickly, especially since I'm the older sibling and it was my school needs at like age six or something that had us have to be more anchored or in one place. So up until, you know, me and my little sister were really on tour with my parents until about the age of six. This is the map, right? (laughs) The map that I didn't know was a map. This is what I thought all of reality looked like. My mom, my dad, me, my sister, the band, the roadies, the other musicians. Every day, two days, three days, a different European city. Trains, hotel rooms, bars, clubs, vans. The main thing was all of us in this small tribe had a common purpose. It was get to the next gig and make a show. And so, you know, my sister had a place. I had a place, even if I was like carrying the tambourine or looking after luggage, or I started figuring out like where the French fries were in this German train station. And it was kind of amazing. Even though you would think that was like a chaotic time, it wasn't. Everything made perfect sense. Everyone had a place. Mm -hmm. Everyone was together. We were together all the time. We were doing a thing. And then all of a sudden, I'm in New York in a Catholic elementary school, and I'm sitting in a damn chair all day long. And there are these people in the front of the room telling me things. I don't understand why I have to do anything. At that point, um, my English isn't that great, but even if my English was flawless, I still wouldn't understand why I have to sit. I was a terrible student and I was miserable. The fluorescent lights, the sitting, and I'd already had a different map for what humans were supposed to do with each other. I didn't understand why I wasn't in the same room as my little sister. I didn't understand where my parents were. And that upset fundamentally shaped me. That like I think it, it like invigorated this very rebellious stance and this like, why are we doing this? What's the point of this? Why am I here? Why am I doing this? And answers like just because you're supposed to didn't, it wasn't enough to satisfy my previous experience in, um, in what it was like to do something together. So I think those, that map transition, that map violation was one that defined essentially the rest of my life. It's so wild because I find that for so many of us, it's the ruptures that become the birthplace of something that becomes really kind of a core search, you know? So it's like that initial rupture of why am I being forced into a system of education or a version of reality that's suddenly very square, very rule-oriented? And so with that search that kind of began inside of you of that deep curiosity of asking why why are we all following the rules why are we doing it this way like are there better ways and aren't there better ways walk us through how you wound up 
deciding to study Taoism at the same time as you became an incredibly successful dominatrix? Like, how did you get from like, okay, I'm going to start asking why to those deep core experiences in your life? I think what you say about rupture is right on uh, the holy unhappiness I felt through all of my school years, the crushing unhappiness and misery. I watched my parents go through something similar. I didn't know it at the time, but like um, the energy that required being touring musicians went into this very, also them being Polish immigrants, um, their belief in the American dream is in some ways like purer and stronger than most, uh, but the like almost toxic, ambitious drive towards success in the music industry the point of why we were doing anything at all was something that I was looking for without even knowing it. And mm. I read a lot as a kid and was really drawn to books, even when I was 10 on like any alternative spiritual path, especially since I was in a Catholic school, uh, Buddhism, I was like sneaking home books on pagan stuff and witchcraft and, um, you know, it, it, it's almost it's almost a cliche and a bad joke that it was like it's time to pay for college. I was like, why do I have to uh, go to a cheap school? Why can't I? So like making money as a dominatrix was something that was like just about as anti everything I was around that I could think of. <laughs> and Taoism, especially in its early forms, later on it matured into a different kind of practice and understanding. But initially, it drew me because it was so magical. Because it had a promise of things that were very supernatural, very metaphysically, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, like the why of even, you know, the constants of physics, um, you know, the, the miraculous healings, the exorcisms, <laughs> the kind of more very um, witchy, wizardy parts of Taoism were the things that drew me in first. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. But. It completely did. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And in so many ways, it's like this maybe um, beginning baptismal experiential first map that you had in which wildness and creativity and alternative possibilities were welcome. You know, that that was maybe the true north that you were then trying to find um, in your explorations to say, okay, I don't believe that this is the only way. I don't believe that this is the only system. I will not play by these rules. I will be the bad girl and break these rules. I, <laughs> I make a lot of money doing it. You know, like this something in you, that deep rebellious um, urge seems to be tied to a deep knowing. And I'm fascinated by this because when I first told you about the concept of this show, when we were talking about it, you're like, oh my God, that's so Taoist. I can't believe that the unknowing is just so Taoist. So could you connect the dots for those who may not be as familiar? How is that connection there? And like, why was that something you said to me? Oh, yeah. You know, this also um, makes me want to add something to the previous question. This is a good link. Even though the rebellious paths that I chose look wild and um, sometimes strange. The drive behind understanding why and the point of things actually made me a practically driven person. Like what works, right? Like yep. <laughs> despite what people say, what actually works? Um, certain rules in society promise something 
does it work? And if it works, what does it work to achieve? And do I want that? Like what works? What's practical? To me, the way to be the most compassionate person involves a hell of a lot of practicality. Like Mm -hmm. what actually works? And I think one of the fundamental truths is that we want to know cognitively and mentally a lot more than we actually need to at the expense of the wisdom and information that arises for us in the moment that like kind of blossoms for the next few steps. That is like a really beautiful way to navigate the world. So when you're talking about unknowing, you're talking about, at least for me, what I hear is breaking the conditioning, breaking the pointless rules that lead you to places you don't even want to go that don't even work. Like this won't make you happy. That won't. And, you know, (laughs) in just a really basic sense, Taoism is also really practical. It's the foundation of Chinese medicine, acupuncture, and almost all uh, a huge percentage of martial arts. So how to heal your body, how to heal other bodies, how to defend yourself. Working as a dominatrix was an absolutely fascinating interface with with human beings and power. It was also a really practical way to make money. It was also really, really practical to be able to start exploring all the things that I didn't like about the way I was being put into a box as a woman Mm. and like testing them out. There's like this very almost um, social scientific experimental part uh, of all of these things that I think have to do with, hey, like we are human beings on this planet. We don't even really know what that means. We don't really know what what it means to be Kasha or Brie or a person. We don't really know where we are. What do we know? And how much do we need to know in order to make the next move and to see the results of that? I mean, think like the, the, the beauty and magic of being alive on this planet is like, you don't know, but you can, in a unique isolated moment, see and find out. And it's not knowledge to be captured. It's like a conversation with the universe where you say something, you do something and the universe responds. You don't get to know where the rest of the conversation is going. You just know that you heard back from the world. Oh, this is the thing. And the insecurity and fear that makes us want to turn that response into a fundamental truth. You know, the, the, the Tao, the, the, the Taoist text, like how cool is this? The Tao Te Ching begins with the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. It's like the fundamental disclaimer of integrity. Like it's, it's saying like the moment we start talking about this, it's never always going to be true. Yes. <laughs> this it's is such just a, it's such a cone. Your brain just kind of self combusts. It's like yeah. <laughs> short circuits. <laughs> I had personal curiosities and pure personal interests. I wanted to be an incredibly powerful woman. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know, understand the things that were in my way. I wanted to break through the things that were in my way. I felt incredibly trapped and wanted to, um, I wanted to understand everything. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to study everything. I wanted to strategize over everyone. And um, in that, like, maybe misguided, but I think really honest, you know, desire to be the most powerful woman in the world, um, I had to be humbled and schooled by the world by facing the results of everything that I tried and seeing that I didn't need to preemptively understand everything. I only needed to have a basic way of operating and like a basic stance, like a basic positive regarding curiosity about how to like look at the responses that the world provides. And it's so powerful to me listening to you talk about this shift from 
this, uh, you know, colonial need to subjugate reality with a form of oppressive knowledge that can then create and determine, um, you know, a sense of certainty versus the kind of radical simplicity an internal posture of humility that says, I don't need to know. I just need to be really, really freaking awake and aware. And so that I can track where life force is moving and be in conversation with the universe moment by moment. I mean, that is, that's such a different posture. That's a completely radically other way of talking about knowledge than even, you know, how society is set up, which is like, academically, you're considered to be an intelligent, knowledgeable person if you know all of this information up in your head. Um, Yeah. And here's my favorite part. The idea that colonial subjugation is bad and the radical simplicity of humility on the inside is good isn't even necessary because it's a question of what works. Mm. Like we just know that we can see like anyone with eyes who's curious and really interested in the subject of power, right? I'm interested in power, but anybody who's interested in the subject of power and being able to like make things happen in the world. If you look at that mindset of utter control, and if you look at tyranny in a amoral, not, not moral way, it becomes really evident that it doesn't work. The amount of force required when you break people's free will, when you take what is inherently wanting to be birthed inside of them, their energy sources, when you try to crush and oppress people, it takes a tremendous amount of energy and wastes the energy that's inherent in them. So even in this kind of like cold-hearted, neutral way, Looking at what works and what doesn't work, it's actually the synergy between human beings that creates all of the stuff we want. The way of looking even at our, how we use our resources and how the ways we go to war, the, all of that stuff. Like We have these metrics that make it look like those things spell success. But those metrics are false. The GDP, like how wealthy a person is when they have lots of money. You know, the, all these things are not... It doesn't take that much to see that it just doesn't work. That the person who has their head full of facts doesn't necessarily make the best decisions is easy to see. <laughs> I just, I just, I love, I love, I love the practicality of how you're describing this path, this way of life, because it's just like, yeah, it just doesn't work if your head is full of information and it's clouding your ability to be in the moment and connect with life force in yourself, let alone how to um, influence and dance with others to create beautiful possibilities. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work. That doesn't work. So I want to ask you about how you're training people to learn the things that work, especially your work with women, because this is really how we met as me witnessing you in your like full glory on your throne and teaching and like bringing it to your class, to the academy, which is the school that you founded. So the first time I witnessed your teaching It was on Zoom and I'm sitting there and you're getting going and you're talking about the importance of connecting with rage. And I'm like, yeah, 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 we should all connect with our anger. Sure, yeah. And you single out a student and you ask her to connect with her rage. And she was, you know, she was like, she got amped up, but it was still like a polite five or it was kind of, I don't know, she was still somewhat apologetic, even in her body posture. She was still kind of shrugging her shoulders and giggling a little bit and kind of on the spot. But there was something in her and you felt it. And you knew it was there. 
from all of your experience, you could feel that life force in her and you were like, nah, I'm not going to let you get off the hook. So you kept prodding her until she finally got there. And I will never forget what I witnessed because when she touched into her rage, she was able to be so clear in her language, but also her whole body posture changed. Her shoulders rolled back, her chin lifted up, and suddenly she recovered her sovereignty. And it made me weep because it reminded me of that movie Hook, where like Peter Pan comes back as a full adult and one of the lost boys comes up to him and grabs his face and starts manipulating all the extra skin until he can kind of see his old friend. And he goes, oh, there you are, Peter, there you are. And in that moment with that student, it was like, ah, there she is. There she is. So talk about this process of aligning with that life force and your work with your students and helping them find that themselves. Yeah. So the, um, in founding the Academy and in working with women to break a lot of the specifically gendered social conditioning, the good girl behavior, all of that, I've gotten to witness such extraordinary beauty and miracles. But what I treasure the most is something that feels repeatedly verifiable to me. Um, Human beings don't have to be good because we already are good and what works is a fundamental goodness. What we have to do is be true. Now, those words can be misconstrued a hundred thousand different ways. So my kind of like anti-morality stance is a challenge to the idea that we're inherently sinful beings that need corrective behavior. Let me draw back to that example and then move back to that spot. So rage, rage can be incredibly destructive. So we don't want it. And we have a kind of cultural practice of kind of perversely, almost a pornographic way, allowing for particular expressions of rage and violence, but really, really regulating them, strongly regulating where it's allowed. You can uh, make a movie where 10,000 people's heads are chopped off, but watch your goddamn tone if you're in a meeting, right? Mm-hmm. So we have, we have a very, very, uh, I see a very highly regulated relationship to rage and and very little understanding of it. The idea is like social control to hijack the power that rage provides, to use it for military purposes, to use it for, you know, very specific purposes, but everywhere else where it occurs naturally, tamp it down, tamp it down. This implies that human beings, you know, have evil in them. This is what on a really, 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 really practical level I see happen with the women in my class and rage. I have yet to meet a woman who isn't on some level furious. The most, most tamped down rage looks like lack of life purpose, lack of energy. Um, Maybe this is a coincidence, but also high incidence of autoimmune diseases. Um, A kind of lack of clarity, sex drive, purpose sleepiness, resignation. Now, because I have a thousand tests of encountering a woman in this stage and testing what happens, is there a rage underneath? 
we'll call this phase one, phase one rage. When phase one rage becomes phase two rage, it's the kind of rage that socially we're most afraid of. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like the way a foot falls asleep. You don't know it's asleep when it's asleep. You don't know you're pissed if, if, if you're in stage one. You, the moment you start shaking it though, you shake it up a little and it hurts. It feels uncomfortable and you can't use it. You don't have control over it. So stage two rage is socially the thing that we're freaked out about, especially with women who are holding a pain body of millennia of rage. And that's the rage that we're like, oh no, this is bad. Because in this state, in stage two, you hurt people. You don't have control. You're destructive. There's a lot of energy, but it's going all over the place. So tamp it down back to stage one. So most people are oscillating and they're moving back and forth between stage one, stage two. And it becomes like a pendulum. It becomes cyclical. It's like, oh, I shouldn't be mad. Oh, but I am mad. Oh, I got to say, blah, blah, blah. The thing that happens if you pass through stage two and like it's, it's good to do, say, a passing through stage two in a safe space in community or in private, not with the object of your rage. There's something that happens where all of a sudden the things that you're fighting against, the things that your anger wants to stop right? Start transitioning into, oh, I want to break through this because I see a vision for something better. The amount of energy that's unavailable to a human being because they're in stage one rage, that they start feeling as uncontrollable and cumbersome in stage two becomes passionate direction clarity. And it's that thing you witnessed when she got to the other side, all of a sudden she went from wanting to yell to a grounded embodied voice speaking in an unshakable, undeniable way, undeniable way. Now we have this funny habit when it comes to emotions, right? The ones that are perceived as negative. It's like you put a biohazard sign on that. Some of them are too tumultuous to just observe, 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 right? But mostly, I mean, even that idea is far more evolved and more Eastern. Um, Suppress the bad ones, control them, hold them away from people. Definitely don't get to the other side of them. Don't rage and scream until you you find your your passion point. Um, And then the positive ones, the positive ones take for granted. Something good happens, right? Oh, I'm fine. I'm good. Let's move on. Let's move on to the next problem. Let's move on to the next situation. There isn't this kind of like, so, so the, 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 the incredible energy available when a positive emotion, what's deemed a positive emotion surfaces, it's not like, hey, I feel fantastic about myself today. I got this beautiful gift or I did this phenomenal thing. So the energy that's there is also not directed, amplified, cared for. Now, if we go into the premise that human beings are fundamentally sinful born with original sin, that the body is bad, that the things that come through us are bad or good. Looking at you, Augustine. (laughs) (laughs) And need to be regulated, need to be um, highly controlled. If we are um, distrustful of what arises within us, we are more likely to be disconnected, disembodied, and also not shepherding and managing and using the negative and positive emotions properly. Because the amount of beauty that's possible, if you wield the beauty of your positive emotions and alchemize your negative emotions, that distinction is only necessary because we made it. It's like you don't treat, you don't treat everything exactly the same. You don't treat a child the same way you treat a pet, the same way you treat a friend. So like those raw 
emotions that are negative only have become the monsters they are because they get locked into a closet and they get worse and worse and worse and worse the longer they stay. And if you don't believe me, listen to how a woman talks to her partner after 10 years of resentment. It might be quiet, but those poison arrows, those vicious, quiet comments can cut an artery. So the, the longer it stays hidden, the gnarlier it is, the more it requires the process of moving from stage one, stage two, stage three. So like when I say human beings don't need to be good because we are good. So all we have to do is be true is a huge oversimplification of the processes that happen when we come to know ourselves again as good, therefore trustworthy and uh, and like, you know, kind of a side note, but since the, the theme of religion's coming up, like if you look at the seven deadly sins, they're only problems if you're disembodied. So like greed, for example, greed only works if you're not embodied enough to feel what you've received and hit a point of satiety. So the problem with greed isn't greed. The problem with greed is disembodiment. If you were there in your seat to receive what your greed got you, you get full like a natural. It's a natural metabolic function. It's a spiritual metabolism. You go out, you get praise, you receive it. You fully receive it. You celebrate it. You say, yes, I did that. Fantastically. I am great. Suddenly vanity, pride becomes less of a problem. Same thing with gluttony, self-regulating. We're self-regulating beings. When we are in our bodies, we are in harmony with the universe. We participate in nature's self-regulating processes. Rage, which we already talked about. Wrath, right? A sin. It's only a problem if you're not embodied enough to feel the passion and where it directs and leads. Name any of them. It's the same thing over and over and over again. If you're there to receive what is already yours, the self-regulating mechanisms of satiety and appropriate hunger kick in. And suddenly even Buddhist ideas of like craving and aversion start going out the window because we're self-regulating. And this is, the, this is the beauty is that, you know, with all of the dramatic problems in the world, to be able to work with a woman and uncover her fundamental innocence, which leads to a tremendous amount of power and influence, like who would have thought that like inherent goodness and innocence leads to her being able to get, you know, outrageously legendary, huge things in the world, to have a feeling of influence. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing to be like, watching over and over and over again that those kind of guilty pleasure you know secretly delicious but maybe a little wicked mm. desires that we have and pursuing them is not only not wicked but requires us to be exactly as we are and it leads to goodness for everyone it's stunningly beautiful to listen to this worldview shift that you've given your life to. And just full stop at like, can we just accept our inherent worth and goodness? Can we please correct this terrible anthropology that religion and certain platonic philosophies have yielded? <laughs> and I'm stunned by this insight that you've just offered about, here you've got the seven deadly sins. And you're like, well... <laughs> If you were just in your body, if you, if you actually were in feeling and sense modality, if you trusted this vehicle of incarnation as, I don't know, maybe capable of manifesting something sacred, 
<laughs> then those issues are no longer issues. And that alone could I just I could just stop right there and like that's a podcast like let's just hover on that but this idea of following the life force and trusting that goodness it seems so simple and yet again and again we default we go back to the smaller lesser kind of disembodied life we stick to familiar patterns we sort of herd into social constructs and I pulled this from your book uh, which I really. I enjoyed living in for the last week, preparing for this podcast. But you say none of the solutions, you were giving examples of, of successes, breakthroughs that your students had. You say none of these solutions came out of the grind. So it wasn't like a forced sort of top down, here's what we're going to do. It came from inspiration, byproducts of the imagination, creativity, experimentation, and ingenuity. They came from following life force. Ultimately, this is the goal, you say, that vital feeling to be fully awake. This is why we have to shed our good girl bondage and the compression that comes with it. This goes past congruence and the ability to communicate in a clean way. In a contracted state, it is not only difficult to fully access our power, but it's hard to feel fully alive. I mean, this reminds me of some of the cones you were saying earlier, because it on the, on the surface, you're like, yeah, that sounds really obvious. But then to live it, to actually have the courage to break those patterns is a whole other thing. So I just want to reflect back that I'm in one of those places of profound unknowing where the following of life force has taken me into doing something that I've wanted to do for a long time. Like I might be dead broke in a few months, but I have never felt clearer, more happier, or more in my body and more here on this planet, you know, harmonizing with the harmonies of the world. I mean, it's like that kind of like bliss, right? And um, I don't say that in a disembodied way. I say like, I'm just really having a lot of fun. But the funny thing is, is for a long time, and you know this because we've been friends for a while now, I've wanted to break through, break out and do my own thing and start doing my own creative projects and honor these creative expressions in my life. But I just kept shrinking back or holding back because we're taught that a courageous creative life is not practical. It's not how things are done. So the universe came along and kicked my ass and set me on this course. So Sometimes the universe intervenes, right? Like sometimes the universe is like, okay, gonna help you break through this limiting belief that you have about yourself. But what practice would you offer listeners to help us get in touch with desire and maybe reconfigure our relationship with desire that has gotten warped through our societal training, <laughs> unhelpful training? Yeah, so um, the first thing is changing how we regard desire to begin with. Because we make New Year's resolutions, because we set goals, because even as kids were asked, some, some of us to like make Christmas lists, right? There's this kind of illusion that we make our desires. We try and articulate our desires, yeah, but we don't make them. You don't sit down and commit to wanting vanilla gelato. You don't engineer wanting. Anybody who's, who's been like, um, this person that I'm in a relationship, I don't really want them, but I want to want them because I think they're good for me, knows what that looks like or a job or anything, right? You don't, you can't like make yourself like be attracted to men if you're attracted to women. You can't make desire. We can't manufacture it. No, no. But we regard it like we do. 
which means if we have a bad one or if we have a good one, we have certain feelings about ourselves. So the first thing to do is to change our regard about how desire works, what it is. And first being like, oh, I am not making these, they're coming through me. So um, I have no say in what I want. It happens to me. Now, I do have say, plenty of say in what I allow myself to see. Next level. How I um, articulate the guesses I make about what will satisfy that. Because when you have an urge for vanilla ice cream, for example, you're referencing something in the past. It may not necessarily be something that's existed before. The actual desire may be calling for something that's not on the menu, not ever been seen on this planet, right? So, so desire comes up. We have say in whether we acknowledge it. We have say in whether in, in our skill level and making educated guesses and experiments about what will satisfy it. We have say in whether we do anything about it at all, but we don't have any say in what comes up. So um, judging ourselves on the basis of our desires is utter nonsense. It makes no sense. So if you have what seems like a very wicked desire, like revenge or destruction, this is a moment where all of the, the Eastern practices and detachment and observation are so helpful, right? Like, oh, I have a wicked desire. This has nothing to do with whether I'm a good person or not. Now, what is this telling me? How do I engage with it? Oftentimes a desire for, this is going to sound nuts, but I do a lot of work with revenge in my classes and the desire for justice and to punish and to destroy people. <laughs> and when we go into that impulse, oftentimes when we start alchemizing it, the, the, the actual essence of the revenge is so generous. Um, so many women will go into like, I want my um, toxic father to go to therapy. First, I want him to pay and then I want him to fix and then I want him to grow. Like there is a generosity that can develop there. So, okay. So desire. Because the ones that seem kind of wicked um, are the quickest ones to be shut down. They're also the ones that are most useful to look at. Because if you don't look at them without judging yourself, if you don't look at them, it often ends up playing out anyway in less than conscious ways. We end up hurting people. We end up, and, and, and then it's messy. It's not skillful. It, it, the result isn't exactly what we want. So the guilty pleasures, those are all clues. I, had a, I have a, a student that was asking me about self-discipline. She runs a business and she wants to spend less time watching TV shows. And I asked her if there's a particular show she watches and she watches RuPaul's Drag Race. And she wanted to stop the hours of watching RuPaul's Drag Race a day. And um, we looked into it. And it seems like this seems like a small thing, but it's a really good direction. What she does is she has a business where she guides women through the wedding process, through being brides, in a holistic and beautiful way. And when we leaned into what she likes about it, because before I would give her directions on how to control that time, how to break the addiction, we had to look into what her desire was saying. Mm -hmm. And she would have never looked at binge watching a TV show as something positive. So we looked into it. She realized that the archetype of the drag queen is so relevant to the woman who's transforming herself as a bride, creating a performance in community and living out loud and having a, a, the kind of like celebration wedding experience that absolutely showcases every single woman's unique fabulousness in this kind of theatrical way. Because it is, it is a ceremonial theatrical 
all of the sudden she saw that she was doing research that those times and being able to accept that had her radically reinvent how she approaches her work and her business and her success in her business. So this is another one of those things where it's just like even the small petty things that we beat ourselves up for being wrong about are very likely intelligent, kind of intelligent signposts that if we meet consciously in a loving way, go, hmm, what purpose is this serving? And instead of uh, categorizing things, trying to get rid of one category and holding another as good, utilizing everything. How can you use your rage? How can you use your laziness? How can you use it? What is it telling you? What is it? What? So the actual exercise, right? Like writing down your desire is super important. Uh, we have a fun exercise that we call the bad girl protocol, where you write down, if I were a bad girl, I would. <laughs> and bad girl, I know it's infantilizing, but it's on purpose. Like, you're such a good girl. You're such a bad girl. You know, the, the way that that evokes those like very fundamental early punishments and rewards. Yeah. Um, and the idea is you let loose. You're writing this on paper. You can destroy the paper. Nobody has to look at it. If vile and really twisted things come up, um, you never have to look at them again. You can look at them and start getting curious. What is, what is wanted here? What's the desire here? Oftentimes things will pop up that are absolutely, totally good and loving. Like, <laughs> like if I were a bad girl, I'd get nine hours of sleep. If I were a bad girl, I would tell my my um, my sister to break up with her partner. Like, you name it. Like they're like, <clears throat> they're things that want to happen. Um. But I think the most important thing is understanding that like your, your uh, uh, transmission receiver of desires, not a creatrix of them. You create a lot in your life, right? You're co-creating your reality with the, the rest of the universe. It's one of the most beautiful paradoxes and mysteries. <clears throat> but, you know, this like we could, we could, we could find a hundred thousand different angles into getting women to start loving all of themselves and human beings yeah. start believing in themselves. Cause what I see is like, you know, there's talk about like the life drive versus the death drive. We're on a suicide mission. There's so much shame in the toxic narcissism of the arch the archetypal man. And there is so much resentment and self attack in the patterning of, for, for women. It's like, <laughs> We are, we are beautiful and trying to become good and beautiful actually um, disgraces are already inherent existing beauty. So that's why it's unknowing, not knowing how to be good, not knowing how to be successful, not knowing how to be better. It's also one of my gripes with a lot of the self-development stuff that I've seen out there in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. It's very much like become better, try harder. And really the, you know, one of our favorite sayings in the school is imagination over effort. When you're stuck and blocked at trying and doubling down on a technique that hasn't worked for you in the past. Oh, this didn't work. It's probably me. I have to try harder. Stop. Take a step back and go, is imagination going to be better here than effort? It's stunning. And those are like, it's, it, those words are such an invitation for a radical social shift as well, collectively, how we do life, how we have understood reality as needing to be this effort-filled, conquering, subjugation, um, disembodied, disembodied bodies disembodying other bodies. 
you know? And I want to begin to wrap up the conversation by talking about what you've already named, embodiment and attention, because you say that asking questions is Adam's superpower. And I want to ask you about this, about imagination and creativity, because some of those power dynamics that you were describing in your book that I've witnessed you teaching in your class, are we not also engaged in a similar relational power dynamic with the universe itself when we place ourselves in a receptive state, but then place the attention outward into possibility, into what is beyond even what we think we can know? Is that how this exchange becomes a dance of creativity? Is that how we move with as opposed to trying to like conquer or uh, be in that grind that you mentioned is a waste of energy and life force? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and maybe for listeners, that's like maybe too subtle and nuanced to grasp what we're talking about because that's exactly right. Like as a solo human being, the dominant and submissive states of attention apply exactly how you described. It's why we have uh, prayer. I was just going to say, it reminds me of prayer. Versus meditation, right? And all traditions have both contemplative practices. The ones where you like basically a conversation, like you speak and you listen. Like in meditation, you're listening and waiting. You're listening and waiting for something non-specific enough to stay open. So you don't like close down around an answer. But that's exactly right. Like you um, you have a conversation with reality. <laughs> and you listen and you speak and you don't do both at the same time. So this attention to the body and I love one of your phrases, where is it? You say, uh, follow your feeling sense. So this attention to the body, this recognition that we need, this relaxing into our inherent goodness and almost like return trust to the power of our volition and desire for participation. So it's like trusting your desires, paying attention to what they are, getting curious about what they are, not labeling and judging ourselves so much. And I'm really glad you brought up the self-help work because in my experience, a lot of the contemplative and and mystical uh, different strands and streams that are bringing people out into these bucolic settings for these amazing retreats, you know, to find enlightenment or whatever, um, you know, a new map for like, "Ah, I got it now, I have the answers. How can we reorient our curiosity to continue to learn helpful practices, whether they be spiritual or otherwise, whether they just be like really freaking practical, like, hey, pay attention to desire, to not make ourselves into projects. How do we relax into allowing it to be something that helps us kind of just come back to the fullness of being alive and trusting ourselves? Well, I love making everything a project. Everything. <laughs> So I love myself as a project. I love myself as a creative. I think you might be referring to um, the self-attack, maybe the way that we kind of. Yeah, yeah. Because even when a student enters the school, sometimes they enter there a little bit like in the doctor's office waiting room. What drew them was pain. And as they're sitting in the waiting room, they're secretly hoping that their pain is getting worse or they're mad that their pain is getting not as bad because they've come to the doctor to heal the pain. Some want to amplify an already existing skill set. Um, but this idea that we're broken and we need to be fixed is uh, it's, it's just, it's just natural that the pain is, is, is a driver, right. Especially in our world, like very little of us like are like, uh, I had an, a great orgasm once now I want to 
investigate that so I can have that all the time by myself with others. We don't do that, right? So pain being a driver is just natural. Um, here's a concept and an exercise, especially for women, but self-attack belongs to all humans. I teach women, so it's more responsible for me to talk about women. Um, for generations, women have been policed, right? Watch yourself, watch yourself, watch yourself. And a lot of it is out of love, right? Because if it's possible for a woman to be, say, sexually assaulted and then blamed for wearing a short skirt, she better watch herself, right? If your mama cares about you, um, you know, especially two generations ago, but even today, she's going to tell you to watch what you wear, right? Mm -hmm. So then we grow up and the self-policing kicks in. Now that we're not policed, we're policing ourselves. Watch yourself. Am I too quiet? Am I too loud? Am I giving off the wrong signal? Am I blah, 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 blah. Here's the beauty of the average woman's incredibly strong and complex self-attack architecture. We are capable of noticing every little detail of the things we do and finding how it could be dangerous or wrong. Doing something that's 97% perfect and harping on the 3%, giving a speech, flubbing a line. Um, we are capable of finding the smallest detail and finding it wrong and attacking ourselves for it. That also means that that same architecture can be used to find every single detail of how we did good and right. So that self-awareness, that painful architecture can be used in exactly the opposite way. What it takes is giving yourself the permission to celebrate yourself Ooh, no vanity and celebrate. And I'm not just talking gratitude lists. I'm talking like, I am so, I am such a badass. I am so amazing. And tracking your victories and remembering that your victories and your wins and your celebrations and your, the things you do, not just the things that are you, I'm so lucky it came my way, right? We, we've learned how to do that. That's important. Very important too. But I'm talking about strengthening the, the muscles that tend to be weaker for you. Going from getting out of bed two hours after waking up to an hour and 30 minutes could be a victory. It could be that you run your whole household. It could be that you do invisible labor and you confronted, you know, the people in your life that are benefiting from it and got them to shoulder some of the weight. It could be anything, but it has to be the thing that lights you and you alone up. When we celebrate something that works, we're teaching our bodies to go for more of that. When we ignore it, that information isn't transmitted. And, and, and we actually learn better from reward than punishment. You can beat yourself up for something until the cows come home. It's only going to make you bodily, somatically, more drawn to that thing. It means that you get a really strong somatic impression when something negative happens, but very little. Like there's um, a part of the brain and body that just tracks experience, not positive and negative. So a huge leap in success and a huge failure is going to track similarly. So what we want to do is start creating really strong impressions for the things that we want more of. So um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a song we have in the school about self-attack, because here's the thing, the moment I start talking about self-attack, it's very likely that you, if you've committed to attacking yourself less, you will attack yourself in the next 10 minutes and then attack yourself for attacking yourself. There I am. <laughs> I'm always so hard on myself. I cannot give myself a break. Why am I always, you know, and then it's the architecture of an anxiety attack, a shame spiral, any kind of pernicious emotion that won't let loose is shaped this way. I'm angry. Now I'm angry that I'm angry. I'm scared. Now I'm scared that I'm scared. I am attacking myself for attacking myself. So we have a song. 
Self-attack is so boring. That monologue leaves me snoring. I've heard it all before. Don't need it anymore. I already know where it's going. (laughs) That is amazing. Amazing. And I want everybody to learn that song because can you imagine the lives that we would lead if we really practiced that and believed it to just drop that, drop that inner attack, drop that tool of self-diminishment? Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons I think that uh, something like a song, uh, you know, the in case of emergency break glass box. (laughs) Yeah. What should be inside it is not a fire extinguisher or an axe, but something outrageous, playful, and ridiculous. Because at the end of the day, that's the best thing to use in an emergency. (laughs) (laughs) That sense of humor to just break, it's like it almost breaks the spell that our judgmental beliefs can hold over ourselves. And in your classes, you do such an incredible job of learning how to somatically imprint together, uh, individually and together, you have your students like, we're going to celebrate the shit out of each other. And so like when somebody says, hey, I did this, and everybody's just like, you're amazing. Like, what a goddess. You did it, you know. And at first it feels like, okay, this is just ridiculous and over the top. Like all I did was like, remember to eat today, you know, like. (laughs) (laughs) But what you're saying is that it takes that repatterning. It takes that level of us beginning to understand, as you were saying earlier, so profoundly, these emotions are messengers and we keep trying to neuter them. We neuter the negatives and we neuter the positives. We're missing out on harvesting deep, profound wisdom and growth and life force. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to add this because what you just reminded me of is, you know, well, one of the ways, the sneakiest ways in which our conditioning influences us really, really sneaky trap is what it's okay to celebrate, what it's okay to like, what it's okay to be happy about, what success looks like, right? Like from the time we're like in grade school, we very know what's cool to like, what's not okay to like, and what's okay to want, what's not okay to want. And in celebrating, in celebrating, in celebrating, there is an authentic, completely uncontrolled, quick flash of what lights you up. I stood up for myself today. I did this today. And if we're not careful, we can miss it because really um, we have such a strong patterning about what success looks like that celebration is very, very, very much warped and mangled by it. Mm. Mm. Well, and the invitation to celebrate all those things that light us up is also your sneaky and masterful way of teaching us how to learn to pay attention to life force and watch where it's going and begin to move in the direction of those desires, which I think is so crucial for us, especially for this community in this podcast. If we're talking about the creative path of possibility, <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're going to need to examine some of these really practical skills that you offer us. And so, Kasha, I, I want to close this immense conversation that has so much wisdom that I feel like I could listen back to this conversation like 17 times and still be like, oh my God, and then that. Um, I want to ask you about what unknowing, because you, you you reference the conversation that's happening under the conversation, like learning how to read life force and attention. So where is unknowing calling to you these days? Like what conversation is unmaking and remaking itself in you right now? Where's your own edge, if you're willing to share? At this time, that's like a really big, unique thing because um, 
A lot of my biggest desires for a long time have been around how I want to engage with the world, the world. And the world is radically changing before my eyes. And the places I wanted in it, I don't think they exist anymore. I don't think they're there anymore. Um, to be a certain kind of person, to have a certain kind of like reputation or influence or lifestyle, or I don't know that that's even, I'm in the biggest period of unknowing in my life. Like I'm going to fly to New York to next week, but I don't know where in the world I'm going after that. And I don't know if I'm staying more than a week, but I know that I have to keep putting myself in environments where I'll be able to feel things that'll tell me what to do next. I mean, we don't know what's happening, right? I mean, do you? Who knows? I don't have a frigging clue. And it's not static. It's moving quickly. It's just, we don't, it's almost illegible. It's like, uh, it's making me think about dance. You know, this conversation is making me think about dance because in our friendship, but in your work, you are always inviting me to tune into the body in the present as a way to open up what's possible. It's like, you're like, yeah, you you can't really do a pirouette if you're not feeling your body. Like if you're not aware of what's happening, if you're not moving with the music. And so, and what I hear you saying is, yeah, you're okay not knowing because there's this sense of, I'm gonna keep paying attention. I'm gonna keep tuning myself to that desire and pay attention to what is waking it up. And I trust it, I, I trust it. Yeah. And also in any given moment, there's always something you do know. There's always something when, uh, when somebody says I'm confused, I don't know what they're referring to is wanting to know more than they need to know right now at this moment, you do know something and that, um, that open attention to knowing what you know and allowing yourself to be the witness of all the false knowings you know, as the false knowings drop away to achieve that state of unknowing is like one of the best navigational kind of ways of going about things I know of. Thank you so much for taking the time to offer such practical, embodied, revolutionary, breakthrough, universe-shifting, paradigm-breaking perspectives and insights. You are one of the true masters that I know, and I'm just so thankful to have you in my life, but I'm thankful that uh, my listeners could learn from you in this conversation. Thank you so much. So we're learning to become free from the stories, the ideas, the beliefs, the patterns that are holding us back. We are learning how to become unbound and discovering the power of living the question and asking why and following what works. I really loved that. Um, Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom I'm taking with me from this conversation. Early on in the conversation when Kasha said, we want to know a lot more than we cognitively even need to. I kind of loved that. I feel like maybe a lot of our unhappiness and frustration and overall malaise is caused by the 
overwhelming amounts of information that are coming at us and we really don't need all this information. So I'm taking that as a cue for myself to limit the amount of input that's coming in and also to remind myself to rest and relax in the sensations of not knowing, that I can trust it, that really the only tools I need are the tools that help me be radically awake and present so that I can tune into my body and feel where the life force is moving to be in reciprocal conversation with the universe as she said so beautifully another piece of true north wisdom i really liked when she was sharing with us about the process that she takes her students through and i've witnessed it uh, from stage one to stage two into stage three now i liked how she described that oftentimes many of us stop at stage two that we feel an uncomfortable emotion and we start to feel the sense of loss of control that that emotion overwhelms us with. But instead of falling through into stage three, which is the breakthrough into just raw potential energy that can be utilized or alchemized into a creative end, most of us just kind of and fall back into, you know, suppressing, tamping it down or pretending it's not there. I, I certainly don't know anyone who does that. I hear that something people do. Other people. Other people do that. If you are somebody who practices meditation or some form of self-regulation, this is why it's useful. It's useful on the path of creative possibility because as creatives, as folks who want to critique the bad by manifesting the better, we need to learn how to fall through that stage too, how to not let that overwhelm stop us from moving through into a new territory with that raw energy even though it's uncomfortable even though it doesn't feel good even though it's hard so many of us were taught to be afraid of or dismiss or be ashamed of the raw energies of emotions that we run backwards but one of my teachers talks about it in terms of stewing she says you know sometimes you just need to stew in something instead of moving away from it move into it sense it in the body and then allow the stewing to reveal the potential of where that energy could be employed or utilized or as kasha said get curious about the emotions and the feelings that are coming up maybe there's something deeper that needs to be explored or uncovered and there's no way to discover what that thing really is about if we're not willing to actually go there and face it and feel it. That's it for today's episode now. I'm going to stand in my own power and sovereignty and be unbound and talk to you really quickly about this show. Unknowing is brought to you entirely because of patrons and it's been such a gift to be able to have these conversations and to be able to bring them to you. I am definitely spending a full-time job amount of time on this show. It's my priority to be able to bring you the conversations that I hope will help you on the path of creative possibility as you live your own unknowing journey. So in order to continue to do that, I need your help. We're in this together. So if unknowing has been meaningful to you, if this conversation impacted you in any way, I'd like to encourage you to consider becoming a patron. You can also give a tax-deductible donation to Unknowing. So as we round the bend toward the end of the year, I can't believe it's happening, and you consider your year-end giving, I hope that you'll consider this show. To find out how to become a patron or how to donate, you can visit unknowing.org. You can also rate this podcast and share it with a friend. And finally, as the poet Rilke says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. I'm trying right along with you. <laughs>